All right, welcome to our first attempt at Roots and Foundations podcast as kind of a supplement to what we're doing in our Roots and Foundations class on Sunday mornings. Um, it's me, Jeremy Manuel, and Nicole Carlin. And we are going to be talking this morning about Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And so we're going to, because um, we're sort of figuring this out, we're in the class looking at the materials created by the BibleProject.org and using their videos out of their Old Testament series right now. And then when we move into the New Testament, we'll use their videos for the New Testament series. And they break some of the larger books into two pieces. So for the book of Genesis, we'll be doing Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And then the next one will be Genesis chapter 12 through 50. So, of course, the big thing with the first 11 chapters of Genesis is the creation story. I mean, that's how we mm-hmm. we start out and is a big foundation for really the whole Bible. And as we talked about it on Sunday morning in class here, one of the big questions that the church has wrestled with for a number of years, especially with the coming of science and, and you know evolution, is do we take the creation story literally? Or is there something more to it where we would call literarily that there's it's a story telling a certain story a certain way, not for science purposes? Right. That it and perhaps maybe um, and we, we want to avoid sort of the trap that has happened within the church where Christians are pitted against Christians trying to sort of prove either a seven 24 hour day version with a 6,000 year old earth kind of argument, the young earth theory versus an old earth theory, um, macro versus micro evolution, intelligent design. We sort of want to take that entire conversation and let's say we'll put a pin in that. We'll just set that to the side for now and say that that's a conversation worth having as long as it doesn't create division among believers. But instead, for our purposes, what we're simply going to say is if we're looking at the Bible literarily versus literally, an example of of doing that is where in the New Testament where Jesus says that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And he's not actually encouraging physical mutilation uh, in the face of uh, difficult to curb bad habits. What he's actually trying to bring to the attention of his audience is that no matter how important or precious something is to you, if that thing is is leading you away from God, you you have to weigh whether it should have a part of your life. And so that's reading or listening to that parable literarily. We're, We're taking the hyperbolic extreme statement of graphic imagery that Jesus is using to get his audience's attention and recognizing at no point is he actually encouraging people to go out and, and, and get an axe and slice their their hand off or chop their hand off. That's not his goal. And so that's looking at that literarily versus literally, because literally it says chop your hand off. Um, but that's not really in the greater scheme of what Christ is saying. It, it clearly isn't what he's trying to articulate. And so kind of jumping back then to Genesis and using that methodology when we look at the first chapter of Genesis and the creation story. While there is the framework of these seven days, what is more important is what's actually happening in this creation story and what makes this particular creation story unique. And really, it's the idea that um, that God is creating order on his own. So many of the other ancient creation stories are born out of this conflict from the gods that, you know, the earth could be 
either a god or a goddess itself, or it's some body of the god of a goddess that was slain by some other god. And so what we see in the Bible is a very different approach. It's one god speaking and creating this orderly creation where he makes light and darkness and separates sky from sea and separates sea from land and then fills these locations with stars and sun and moon or fish or birds and animals and people like so there's this idea that god is doing it on his own and it's this orderly way and it's different also from those other some of those other creation stories in that the the god of the bible is uncreated which is this really crazy idea that he has always been. And we really, we sort of say that, but trying to wrap your mind around that there was this being that ex- has always existed. And he makes this creation. He's he's not consulting with anyone. He's not battling with anyone. He's simply deciding to speak it into existence. And that time is part of that created order, which is partly where that, you know, that question of how long did it take if time is created as well, that's part of that grappling with and that God exists outside of time. And so that that's part of the mystery, some of the unanswerable questions. And so we wanted, uh, as we, you know, as we look at this creation that um, we have recorded in Genesis that we do take seriously, um, we do look at and see uh, an, an understanding of the world that we exist in uh, bring, being brought to structure by God in Genesis, that the the point is less so about the the debatable things that aren't explained. It doesn't explain some of those details about time and how's that all work. And that to be able to sort of set aside the questions about the unexplained parts and instead paying attention more to what is explained. And one of the things that is explained is that we have a God who speaks this orderly creation and creates this framework. And he, in, in the recording of this, we, we go with this traditional understanding that Genesis was written by Moses, um, that God gave him this, these, these, these stories, this information for him to record for the people of God. And we have this Hebrew parallel structure of the light in the day and the lights um, the, the, each of the days, sort of the first three days paralleling the second three days. So that day one parallels day four, day two parallels day five, and day three parallels day six. And that information is all worked out in the study guide that goes along on the BibleProject.org's page with this video. If you scroll down, you can open that up and look at that materials. But really, as they say, Yahweh creates by bringing order and beauty out of chaos and darkness. And the purpose of this particular writing was not to be a scientific treatise, but simply to tell the story and beautifully told in a very powerful way. Yeah. And part of that story is then kind of the second point that they make is the idea that humans are the divine image bearers, which again, if you compare that to other religions, oftentimes humans are kind of viewed very lowly. They're slaves of the gods. They're just kind of expendable, really. Um, They're used to be manipulated or to just provide something for the gods' entertainment or sustenance. But here we see God creating humans as divine image bearers, that we are made in the image of, of God, which is amazing comparatively. Yeah. And that whole idea of being an image bearer 
And sometimes you'll come across the phrase in Latin, imago Dei, which just means image of God. But this idea that we're created that way is that we're God's representatives, that in some capacity, and they bring out the idea that the word used to say that we are in this image, it literally means statue or idol. And there's other places where the word is used and that there in those passages, that word is being used to talk about idols. This idea that we were commissioned as actual representatives of God's rule over creation. And that's straight from their study guide. But that as a result, we have a responsibility that God made the world a particular way. And we have this then responsibility to act as God's stewards or God's representatives to this uh, good creation on his behalf, not on out of our own steam or our own idea, but that this is why we're here. This is the the kind of answers the question of why are we here? Uh, We were intended to act as stewards, but as we continue through Genesis, things kind of go off the rails pretty quickly. And that leads us to the extremely famous scenario Adam and Eve, and uh, they're in the garden, and they encounter the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they've been told to not eat of the fruit of that. And then the the character of the serpent arrives and tempts them, and 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 tempts them with a variety of of sort of challenges to really getting at is God good? Did God, you know, which is a fundamental question in many ways. That's what is amazing about just these first three chapters of Genesis is that they're getting at the very fundamental questions. Like we're image bearers of God here to steward God's creation. Why are we here? That's why we're here. And the the next kind of event, this this fall from grace is with Adam and Eve is this idea of what went wrong. And in that is the challenge to the question, is God really good? Um, and that's what the serpent is is sort of challenging Adam and Eve and them wanting to be like God, even though, ironically, by the very nature of what they are, they are already like God. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not they're not understanding that in this in this interplay. And I think it's also important to kind of notice that both male and female were made in the image of God. So I think it's easy to kind of fall into like the especially when you go into the sin of the Garden of Eden and Eve takes from the tree to the kind of view like, oh, well, Eve was just not quite, they were both created in the image of God. And so there's, there's a kind of a need to recognize that. And, and I think like kind of asking that question of what went wrong, you know, you can read the first couple chapters of Genesis and be like, well, God created this orderly creation, these people who were made in his image, what happened? Why isn't our experience as orderly as it kind of seems like the very beginning sets out. And that's because of that sin in the Garden of Eden of Adam and Eve, of taking from the fruit, from trying to be God, have their eyes opened and and to see that. And it disrupts this order of creation. It disrupts our relationships with ourselves. It dis- disrupts our relationships with other people. It disrupts our relationship with creation and God himself. So it's just this kind of mess that happens that our own sin just kind of goes out of control. And and this idea that, you know, it came up in class, the idea, well, why did God stick that tree in there? You know, it, and yet the, the tree that's there, this idea that what it represents is the idea of God being able to create boundaries or limitations for us. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important, especially in the conversations that we have today about boundaries, limitations, and the, even the concept of sin, 
is there's this real struggle with the idea, but but this is good and God made it, so why isn't it okay? But if you look at the language that talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what it says is God made that tree and the fruit on it was good to eat. So here we have something that God made that is in of itself good. The only restriction on it, the, it's not, the only problem with it is simply because God said don't. Not He doesn't explain why. He doesn't, he doesn't clarify. He just simply creates a boundary. And I think what Satan is actually tempting them with isn't necessarily what they think. What he's actually tempting them with is you shouldn't have any limitations. You shouldn't have any boundaries. God shouldn't tell you no. And I think that that is a really intriguing moment, especially for us today, that we really wrestle with, well, if it if it seems good and God made it, why can't I? And And yet, all the way back at that very moment in Genesis, the answer to that question is, is because God said no. And sometimes what we want, we have to sacrifice in submission, in that that dynamic of relationship with God, where he gets to be the creator and we get to be the creature. And that's hard for us. And we see that being hard for Adam and Eve. And so the deception, sort of the invitation to sort of be like God, to know good from evil, they, they go for it because ultimately the human condition is I don't like limitations. Don't tell me what I can't do. And and we see that playing out with the destruction or the fracturing of these relationships on every level, which then leads us to how God chooses to respond to that. Which there's kind of this two levels that, that there's response. There's consequences for these these sins. You know, like Adam and Eve, they they take from the fruit of the tree and because of their their sin, they are wind up exiled from the Garden of Eden. They wind up getting this curse placed upon them. The woman would have pain during childbirth. Men would, you know, like the land would be hard to work. It would be, you know, difficult to make a living. So there's this idea that sin has consequences. But yet there's this idea that God is also showing grace in the midst of this. Um, even though the idea behind the eating the tree of good and evil <laughs> That death would be a result and kind of not presenting this, oh, well, you'll just die eventually, but that death immediately will happen. And that's not the case. Um, you also see that in this, there's this promise of a redeemer whenever the snake is cursed that, you know, there'll be enmity between the, the offspring of the man and the woman and the serpent. And eventually one of the offspring will crush the head of the serpent, even though he will get bit on his heel. And it's this idea that there will be somebody who will come and destroy this serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. And many people kind of believe this is the first presentation of what Christ will do in the future, that, that this is kind of a, a very early foretaste of, of Christ coming and that there will be somebody, a redeemer, who will destroy sacrificially evil. sacrificially choose. yeah um and that came up in the class was well he only bites him on the heel but understanding that at that day and age and lack of anti-venom and the idea that the serpents people were afraid of were the ones that would kill you and so the idea in that image would be that that would be a fatal wound even though it's only on the heel it's still a fatal wound and that that the audience would have understood that this was that in the crushing of the serpent's head that this savior would then also die uh, in the midst of this scenario so and i think that i think that's called the proto-evangelion evangelion 
proto proto evangel or proto yeah it's the idea that it's sort of the early the beginning first time you're going to hear about the idea of a savior coming and and so again the idea that in this first section of genesis so much of what we understand as christians is is laid out and a lot of big questions are answered so then as we kind of move forward through the different stories in Genesis, there are lots of familiar stories. People are familiar with the stories of Cain and Abel and Noah and the Ark and the Flood and the Tower of Babel um, or Tower of Babylon, depending on how you're looking at that. So, But each of these stories, in essence, are, are hitting at this key theme, this idea that we sin, so you know, Adam and Eve sin, that there's consequences, that there's curses as a result, but then there's grace. God doesn't slay them immediately, but instead, while there are consequences and the curses, there's also a promise of redemption down the road, and he clothes them and sends them on their way. There's the example of the sin of the people in Genesis chapter 6, where things are just really a mess. The consequences are the flood, and sometimes these consequences are natural. The, The things that we do just are bad and there's bad that results from it, but other times they're divine where God is bringing a judgment specifically on that sin. But then there's grace that God intervenes with Noah, saves Noah's family and makes a covenant with creation to not do that again. So we see that model throughout the different stories that you're going to be reading in Genesis, this idea of sin consequences, but then God bringing grace in the midst of that. Yeah, Cause I think it's this idea of, you know, that God created orderly, Humans have kind of messed that up a little bit. You know, we disrupt that order of creation and there's consequences, you know, I mean, there's just consequences in life. You you do something and there's a, a reaction to that. But yet God in the midst of that isn't wanting that consequence to be the last word, that there's still this kind of desire to attempt to reestablish order and to have people be able to enjoy life with each other, but also life in relationship with him. And so there's kind of this striving to bring people back to him. And we kind of see that being previewed right near the end of this section, the first 11 chapters, when we start getting the the genealogy that leads us and begins to talk about Abraham, um, which will be a topic for next time. But we we see the the hints of that, that that God's going to use this one family to kind of be his, Mm -hmm. his means to try to bring order back to his creation. Right. And that's the thread that, again, as Christians, when we read the biblical text, there sometimes people have the idea that somehow Jesus was an afterthought, (laughs) that things were just continuing to go bad and God had to do something. He had to pull something out of the hat. When in fact, the idea is that almost from the very beginning, God saw where, because again, this, and this to me, because I love you know, sci-fi and space travel and time travel and understanding, or at least thinking about it. Um, this idea that God being outside of time knows where it's going. And so almost immediately he sets into place, into motion, a plan to bring about restoration. And for us being very small, limited creatures, it's very hard to be patient. Sometimes it's very hard for us to even conceive that there's a plan in the midst of it, or that God has a, a destination, you know, it just, it seems like it's taking so long. I think it's why Jesus has so many parables about waiting, <laughs> because he knows it's hard for us to wait. But here, at he begins a relationship. We hear about these people from Haran, and, and they're on a journey, and, and they only get so far, Abraham and his father, Tara, and his brother, and his nephew, and his wife, and, and then we get just to the very end, 
and and this this genealogy sort of comes right on the heels of the scattering of the nations with the destruction of the Tower of Babel, and it, we're just sort of it, it sets the stage, and so the next discussion of roots and foundations we're going to be talking about um, Genesis chapter twelve through fifty and kind of following this foundation that's been laid for how is God going to build a relationship with this one man, but that it's not just about this one man or this one people group or this one nation, but it's about the entire world and all nations are going to be blessed through this relationship that God initiates. Um, And it's going to be the cradle out of which the Messiah is going to emerge down the road. You know, it's kind of interesting with all this. I mean, like it doesn't get any less messy. I mean, like these stories, even just from the first 11 chapters are messy. I mean, you have things like the flood, which, you know, are are hard stories, even though they decorate our kids' nurseries, you know, (laughs) Um, but they're, they're really hard. And, you know, we're just kind of doing an overview here, but I mean, there's some real things to wrestle. And once we get into Abraham and his kids and their kids, you know, like there's still some tough stories in there. And yet there's still this kind of overarching theme that we kind of want to keep our our hand on and yeah. keep our eyes on. And so that's kind of where we'll be going. And so, and then the other, like, so as we go through these, you're going to hear us talk again about reading it, understanding the literary style that it's written. Is this poetry? Is this genealogy? Is this law? What the writer was writing when they wrote it down? Cause that helps us understand what we're reading. Um, and the other thing is, is the, the contrast between prescriptive and descriptive. And that one's going to come up quite a bit, especially by the time we get to judges where there are points in the Bible that describe descriptive. They just tell us what people did. And there's no uh, overt, this was a good thing or a bad thing. It's just what they did. Um, and uh, there's a lot of really messy R-rated stuff that happens in the Bible that falls in the descriptive category with no in- idea that we are supposed to be doing these things. These are just things people did and are recorded honestly in the text. Prescriptive are places where God is saying, I want you to do these things places where we're instructed. So those are two concepts that we're going to keep bringing up as we go through this to just pay attention, especially when we're dealing with some of the really messy, gory, um, kind of outside the box, everything's gone sideways, parts of the Bible that people don't like to talk about because they're uncomfortable with, well, what do we do with this? So we'll be coming back to those concepts as we go forward over the next however many weeks it takes us. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time.